0: reading Exodus 25 verses 10 through 22. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it, And two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Lord may take your seats.
1: Good morning, Taproot. Good morning, Will. <laughs> Good morning, Devin. If you'll give me a second, I gotta readjust this to short guy status. There we go, that's a little better. Um, man, if you're uh, if you're new here, welcome. My name is Will. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Um There's a little connect card in front of every seat pocket. If we don't know you, we would love to get to know you. And so if you're new, would you just fill out that connect card, drop it off in one of those black boxes at the end of the service. We'd love to email you or just see how we can pray for you or how we could uh, maybe best serve you. Um, Also, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love to give you a Bible. There's Bibles on that back wall, and there's more Bibles in that little foyer area, if you came in here not owning a Bible, will you please not, not leave not owning a Bible? Um, that's our gift to you, because we love you, and we love the Bible. Um, so we're in our Exodus series, where we've done f- four parts, yeah, man, that Roman numeral up there, it's hard to, <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from Texas, we don't do no Roman numerals, um, we're in part four of our Exodus series. We're calling this "Redemption as a Pattern," and we're looking at some of these huge, big, sweeping themes through this last part of the Book of Exodus. Um, in this sermon uh, today, we're going to be covering things that start in verse or in chapter twenty-five, all the way sweeping to the end of the of the text. Um, so, there's not like one specific text we're preaching. This is um, kind of a big theme throughout the last half of the entire book. Um, So to catch us up, last week, Glenn preached an awesome sermon looking at a lot of the symbolism in the tabernacle and looking at the courts that represented this inhabitable earth, the the land, the stuff you and I can live on. We looked at sort of the inner courts, which represented the sky, uh, you know, places where birds live, things that we can't necessarily inhabit ourselves. And today we're going to be looking at this innermost room of the Holy of Holies, or the innermost room of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Um, And we'll get into it later in the sermon, but this represented uh, in the Hebrew mind what's on the other side of the sky. Like, what's on the other end of that blue stuff up there? Um, And so just to get us in a a frame of mind to to walk through uh, this this, uh, piece of text. Um, So I feel. How many of you guys know that I'm the meme guy? How many of you guys know what memes are? How many of you guys know that I'm the meme guy? I'm the pop culture reference guy, often to my own detriment. Uh, I have to confess to you, I cannot preach a sermon on the Holy of Holies without referencing Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, I feel like it is my duty to do so as the weird pop culture reference guy. Um, For those of you who don't know this story... Uh, this is World War II, Indiana Jones. The Nazis are, are hunting the lost Ark of the Covenant, the, the thing that we read about. Um, it's because they believe it will give them some sort of power, some sort of edge in the war, and they eventually find it. Um, and there's this scene where the, the people open up the Ark, and for a split second, there's light and glory and all these amazing good things And then how many of you guys have seen the movie? All right, some of you guys have homework. Um, And very, by today's standard, terrible effects. Nazi faces start melting, and the glory of the Lord comes and crushes, like utterly obliterates the Nazis, Um, which were like, yay, Nazis are lame. Um, (laughs) And it's this iconic scene in the movie, and the funny thing is about that, I don't think the movie was trying to make a theological point, but I think it did a halfway decent job. You see, the Nazis did not interact with the presence of God correctly. God's holiness has wrath against human sin, and there's, there's no greater caricature of human fallenness and human sinfulness than the Nazis. And so they interact with God's presence wrongly. They, they kind of uh, go into it a little bit flippantly, and God destroys them. Um, and so it, it kind of gets us into our, our main idea today. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to say this. Um, I am totally ripping off something I heard on the Bible Project. If you guys are familiar with those, that YouTube series, it's awesome. Go check it out. Um, our, our big idea today is that God's holiness and God's presence are in fact dangerous, but not because they're bad. God's holiness and God's presence are dangerous because they're so incredibly, unfathomably good that it's dangerous to us. And um, when, we, when we hear dangerous, it's so hard for us to disconnect danger And bad. And so maybe maybe a good parallel would be something like fire. Um, Fire is a good thing. I enjoy most of my meats at least a little cooked. Um, I enjoy being warm in the winter. I enjoy many of the things that I have to have fire to do. But you know what I hate? Forest fire. I hate fire when it's out of the kitchen and into the living room. When, when fire's in the wrong place, it's very destructive, and when fire's in the right place, it's very good. And so God's presence, similarly, is dangerous, but it's not bad, it's good. So that's our, our main idea uh, this morning. So a 30,000-foot overview of the sermon. We're going to look at God's holiness, we're going to look at God's presence, uh, we're going to look at how this Holy of Holies, how this text that we read, this Ark of the Covenant, actually reveals God's heart for his people. Um, then we're going to try to look at what all of this means for you and I today, right? Because if, if we don't bring this into you and I for today, what are we even doing, huh? Um, so let's pray. We'll get started. Yeah. Holy God, so we open up your word, Would you open up our hearts? Um, But could we not only read the scriptures, but could we have the scriptures read us as well? Would you tune our hearts, our minds, our affections, our bodies um, to to wonder, to awe, to tremble, to, to celebrate, to feel joy, to feel hope as we look at who our God is this morning. Um, God, I, I ask that you would guard my speech. Um, I so desperately want to steward this topic of, of holiness responsibly and well. Would you please strike from my mouth anything foolish? Um, yeah, may you stir up worship and wonder in our hearts. Amen. All right. So, um, so, let's look at God's holiness. I think Glenn did an excellent job last week uh, defining holiness. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, you can go to taprootchurch.org and I'm sure there's a sermons button on there you can find. Listen to that sermon, it's really cool. Um, for us today, holiness is, is gonna mean to exist in such a way that completely destroys categories. Um, most of us, when we hear Holiness, we immediately jumped to the idea of, like, moral perfection. Um, God doesn't do anything bad. That's certainly true. That is absolutely true. But holiness doesn't end with mere moral perfection. It goes far beyond into uh, a good quick example is if we, if we think of the concept of time, um, if I'm interacting with time... It's a linear line, right? I can't step to the left or the right. I'm walking in one direction at a pace that I don't choose, and I'm also facing a direction. I only know what has already happened, and I can't see. Hopefully, I'm not about to run into somebody's mic stand. I can't, but if I was, I couldn't tell. I, I walk through time facing a way that I don't get to choose at a pace that I don't get to choose, and it's one directional, and it's linear. God exists in such a way that he walks whichever way. Ooh, I didn't run into someone's mic stand. He walks in whatever way he chooses throughout time. Um, If God wants to step off the line of time, he is free to do so. He faces whichever way he wants. And frankly, I have no idea what that means. Because it destroys my category for what time is and how I'm supposed to interact with this thing we understand as time. God is not bound to those things. He's holy. He's set apart. He's other than. He's He's not like us. Man, um, that should that should make us go. That should blow our minds, right? Like God's base level of existence is something that. I don't have the faculties to explain. And, you, and even if I could explain it, which I can't, we can't understand it. It's so above us and beyond us. And so just like Glenn walked through the symbolism in those first two areas of the tabernacle, we're going to look at some symbolism in this last room, this innermost room called the Holy of Holies. Um, how many of you guys, when we read the scripture reading... Uh, when you started seeing things like qubits and Gopher Wood, it was you were just like, "Man, this is not, this is not written for my personality type. I am one of those people. Um, I, as soon as I, I hear qubits, I'll be honest, I have no idea what we're talking about. I am immediately lost. And then there are people, uh, probably some of our more engineering types, maybe some of our more build-it, construct-it types. You, you hear that, and you're like, well, how, how long's a cubit? I can go build it right now. Um, <laughs> confession. I am absolutely not that guy. Um, a book that helped me understand some of those cubits. Why are we talking about measurements? Why are we talking about what type of, of wool and wood and, and metals? Uh, there's, this, there's this great book Called the Temple and the Church's Mission by um, G.K. Beale and D.A. Carson. If you're a little nerdy and you want to read something, it's awesome. I cannot recommend it enough. It t- it helps me understand th- this part of the text so much more. I love this part of the text now, even as a guy who does not understand what a cubit is. Um, so, and their their argument is every every little piece of the tabernacle is meant to Symbolize. It's meant to stir our minds and our hearts. It's meant to stir our affections towards something. Um, And so, again, the outer courts, that's like the inhabitable earth. The inner courts, that's like the the sky. Um, And then the Holy of Holies is going to represent the unseen realm. Um, It's going to represent, again, what's on the other side of that blue stuff in, in the ancient Hebrew mind. So the first thing we're going to interact with um, as we come through the Holy of Holies is this thing called the veil. This is a, this is a curtain made of beautiful blue and red and, and purple fabric that's um, you know, th- almost three feet thick, around three feet thick. This isn't like some pretty Ikea curtain that you hang up one week and it's trashed in a month. This is this huge, thick, beautiful, red, blue um, and and purple curtain, and those colors represent again the sky. It's supposed to bring our hearts to this image of this beautiful painted sky. Um, and it's it, there's this th- th- thickness to it. It's 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 got a function. It's it's separating something. Um, It's supposed to remind us as we walk through this veil, as the high priest would walk through the veil, it's supposed to remind us we're leaving the stuff that we know. We're leaving the stuff that we're comfortable with, and we're stepping into a realm that we don't know anything about. We're we're stepping out of of the stuff that, that I'm at least a little bit comfortable with, and we're stepping into things we've never seen. We're stepping into things we can't see. We're stepping into things that we can't know. And that, that terrifies me a little bit, frankly. Um, it, it also is, is a reminder um, back to the, the separation, the thickness. It wasn't this thing you could just trouse through as, as though it were a, a, she, a bed sheet hung in a doorpost. Um, it's reminding the high priest of what happened in, in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are in, in the garden and they sin. And God explains that their sin is unfortunately going to separate them from the presence of God. Um, he's going to say, you can't be in my presence anymore because of your sinfulness. Um, God's going to say, I have, I have to have just wrath against sin. And to, so to spare your life, I'm going to veil myself from you. So every time the high priest walks through, he's going to remember the separation that came in Genesis 3 and the fall and the curse. Um, The second thing we're going to look at, if we could walk into the Holy of Holies past the veil, the first thing we're going to see past the veil is the cherubim. Um, How many of you guys are even familiar with the word cherubim? Show of hands. Okay. How many of you guys have ever seen a cherubim walking around in Burian? That is the correct amount of hands up. That's not something that we have a category for. It's not something that we just casually go, oh, look, cherubim, angel, wings, cool, whatever. Um, it's, it's something that takes us out of where, where we're comfortable. It's this angelic creature um, that a lot of times in the scripture is, is tending to God. And it's, it's the creature, again, in Genesis 3 that stands post and guards the entrance to the garden. Um, it's it's again a reminder, brother, sister, high priest. You are not on your turf. You are entering holiness. You are entering a space that you don't have categories for. Um, the The third thing I want to bring up, and there's much more symbolism. We're only going to look at three things today. It's the mercy seat. Uh, the idea of the mercy seat. One of the ideas is they understood it to be a throne. It's the throne where God reigns. Here's a question for us that I found intriguing. If it's a throne, why isn't it in like the outer courts where everyone could see it? Isn't it important for a king that is people can actually like see his throne? Isn't, wouldn't that be a good reminder? Um, I think, I'm going to steal a Glennism again. I can't prove it, but I think... Um, Think that the throne is in the, the holy of holies. The, the throne is in this, this place that represents the unseen realm because God's reign is not merely the inhabitable earth. God's reign is not merely over the skies and the stuff that we can't reach. God's reign is from an unseen realm that is higher than. There is no authority in the sky. There is no authority on earth in the land that can say to him, I challenge your authority. God reigns from the unseen realm. He is unopposed in his rule. There is no power that can thwart him. There is no higher than person who can can offer disagreement or or talk talk to him as though he were above him. He reigns from a place of holiness, For to put our shoes, or ourselves in the shoes of the high priest and walk into this, this holy of holies. Um, it should unsettle us, right? We're, we're this human interacting with this room that we don't have categories for, we can't understand. Um, there's, there's animals in here that we know nothing about and we're about to approach a God, a God who reigns in a way that again, destroys my categories. This this holy of holies reminds us, points us to the holiness of God, and it is sort of unsettling, and that's good. The holiness of God is not supposed to be casual. So let's look at the idea of of God's presence now. So we're going to Push pause on God's holiness. We're going to look at God's presence. Um, so in the story of Exodus, we see Israel who was once a slave, a slave nation, right? They were enslaved the Egyptians. God has now freed them. He's even making them a nation presently. Um, we see An an Israel that had forgotten the name of God, an Israel who didn't know God, and God shows up in this burning bush, and now they know God, and they've seen him work. We have a nation of people that have seen miracles. They've seen manna, whatever that is, come down from the sky and feed them. They've seen water from a rock. They've seen a cloud by day, fire by night. They've seen God work beautifully. God has given them the Ten Commandments. They have this this beautiful moral code. They have an identity as a nation. And yet, there's one thing that they lack. God is not yet able to dwell with them. It's the one thing that Israel needs. And yet, because of holiness, it's the one thing that is terrifying. And so... There's this dissonance when we talk about the holiness of God, meeting the presence of God. Uh, they, they have to work together to mean anything, right? If God is holy, if God is other than, outside better than, but he's not really present, then why do we care? If, if, he, if he is true goodness, but he doesn't care about us, if he doesn't want to be with us, what does that really do for us? On the other hand, if, if God is truly present with us, but he's not holy, well, why does that matter? Um, God has to be better than us if he's gonna be the God that he says he's gonna be for us. I kind of think of like, um, you guys know some of my buddies, my best friends are like, Darren, and Alex, and John, um, when those guys say, hey, you want to hang out, it's great, right? It's fun. I get happy, but it doesn't undo me. When God says, hey, build an ark, because I want to dwell with you, that's where holiness meets presence, and it just undoes us. But it introduces a dissonance. How does a holy God dwell with a sinful people? The presence of God is the very thing that that Israel needs. Um, But because of their sin, it's the very thing that will destroy them. Um, In our interactions with God. I know a lot of the times for me, when I feel that dissonance, I can feel my own sinfulness, and I can, I can feel God's holiness, and there's this dissonance in my soul where, where the unclean, where the, the messy stuff in me meets the beautiful stuff in God. Um, and then I, ha- I have a few options. I can deny, I can try to Deny God's holiness. Um, But see, I don't want to do that. We all want a God that hates sin. right? We all want a God who hates abuse. We all want a God that hates racism. We want a God that that hates systems of oppression. We want a God that hates lying. Um, If God were to, to witness abuse and not do anything about it, If that were a person, man, we'd we'd have a problem with that, wouldn't we? And so we, we want a God that hates sin. We want a God that says, that is not right. That is not flourishing. That's devaluing my image in humanity, and I will not stand for it. But we are terrified of a God who hates our sin. When it becomes my lying, when it becomes... My ignoring him, when it becomes my looking to other things to, to satisfy or distract me, I'm terrified of a God that hates that in me. And so what do we do? Do we try to diminish God's holiness Well, no, we want God to be holy. We need God to be holy. Do we try to act as though God isn't really present? Um, I mean, well, maybe, but but then what's the point? Um, How does God solve this issue? Um, I think his solution for this issue is going to reveal his heart. So God could, um, one plausible, although not particularly pretty solution, God could say, I'm going to uphold my holiness. I'm going to be present with the people and just obliterate them because of their sin. And then the book of Exodus ends, actually the Bible ends, um, because all, all of his people are obliterated because of their sin. And then we all go home incredibly hopeless. Um, or God upholds his presence but says, I'm going to maybe uh, sweep sin under the rug, and he ceases to be a good God. He ceases to be a holy God. Um, God's going to choose a third option. He's going ch- to choose atonement or um, the day of atonement. Um, this is where God is allowed to or God chooses to uphold his holiness and say, I have a just wrath against sin. God chooses to uphold his presence and say, I will dwell with my people. And the way that he does this um, is that word atonement. What's gonna happen is they're gonna take two animals. The high priest will take two animals. Um, one, he will release into the wild, and one he will take, and this is brutal, he's going to slay it, he's going to kill it, he's going to take the blood of the animal, he's going to come to that throne, that mercy seat, and offer the blood of an animal in place of the sin of the people. So God says, my wrath against sin is just and right and good. Something has to die. And that's weighty and it's grody. Something has to die, but in my mercy, because I want to show you how merciful I am, I'm going to allow this animal to stand in the gap, to absorb the sins of my people, and then I will let my wrath fall on it. And it's going to kill it. And then you, Israel, can come to me. You, Israel, um, can can dwell with me and I can dwell with you. And in that day of atonement, we see God's heart is not deal with it. Be better. I'm going to uphold my holiness, so get your stuff together is not God's heart. We see in the Day of Atonement, God's heart is not, I'm just gonna be the, the dad in the family that just pretends like nothing's happening and doesn't address anything. I don't want anything to get better. I don't want anything to get worse. I just wanna be here but distant. That's not God's answer. God's answer is, come to me because I've made a way for you to come to me. is not That's scandalous. God's grace says, I have every right to crush Israel. They're going to make a gold calf. They're going to have this God, right? Cloud by day, fire by night, doing all this stuff. And they make a golden calf. Man, I'd be angry. And yet, God says, in my anger, I'm going to make a way for forgiveness. Rather than wrath on Israel, I'm gonna make a way to be with my people. I'm gonna make a way to execute mercy. Why? Because that's who God is. God is grace, God is mercy, God is holiness, God is His presence. And this, this Day of Atonement is an amazing thing, but it is the crazy thing. As scandalous as the Day of Atonement is, it's just a little shadow. It's just a picture of what it was pointing us to. Um, the Day of Atonement points us to the gospel of atonement. Um, this is where, similarly to the Day of Atonement, um, God would, rather than send a, an animal, God would send his very own son. That son would be the perfect image of God and human flesh present with his people. That, that Jesus would operate perfectly. He would execute moral perfection, perfection of will, perfection of being. He would execute God's holiness when he encounters things like demons. He, he encounters a demon-possessed man. He says, demon, get out. And The demon doesn't even argue with him. The demon says, yes, sir. Right? He, ex- he totally executes God's being in a category that, or being, his being in a way that destroys our categories. Um, though Jesus, God's son, was holy, um, he would be put up as a sacrifice. Um, on the cross, they would put nails in his hands, and nail in his feet. On the cross, he absorbs the sins of God's people. Though he was innocent, he says, I want to do that for them because I want to be present with them. This is what the cross is. It's God's means of being present with us. And so God would allow humanity to sacrifice his only son. God would permit humanity to kill his son as a means of offering, as a means of atonement, so that Jesus on the cross dies for Will Trainer's sinfulness. Jesus on the cross dies for the sinfulness that was committed against Will Trainer. And that's amazing news, right? Can we let that stir up our affections for a minute? God died for you. That's incredible. Here's the crazy part. The news doesn't end there. The gospel goes further still. Not only does God take your sin upon himself so that you no longer bear it in the sight of God, he goes a step further and he gives you his righteousness you look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, that's insane. That should stir our emotions. That should do something with us. God sees you as righteous as Jesus is. And he knows you. That's crazy. And so we have this, this gospel of atonement with this plot twist of God's going to send his son to be the, the perfect high priest. who's going to mediate the presence of God. He's going to mediate the sacrifices for God. And then double plot twist. God's going to actually be the sacrifice himself. Jesus is going to be The sacrifice. So let's look at what this means for us. If we look at this concept of the holy of holies where God's holiness and God's presence meet, if we look at it through the lens of of the gospel, through the, the lens of Jesus... What are we to pick up i think the first thing is we learn we run to god and not from god Um, and when i say that please don't hear me saying that flippantly Um, i am sometimes oftentimes terrified in my own sinfulness when i have sinned against my wife when i have been a lazy father, when I have given myself to apathy, when I have sunk headlong purposefully into depression and fear, I am terrified to bring that to God, because I'm, I'm being honest with how ugly I am, and how could I bring this ugliness into holiness? Um, everything in me, if I'm going to be honest with you, church wants to rather than run to God. I want to run from him as far and as fast as I can because frankly, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of myself. And so that shame seeps into my heart and tells me lies. That, that shame is this barrier between me and God. funny thing is, thousands and thousands of years removed, I'm still reacting in my sin the same way that the first humans reacted. Um, we'll go back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they disobey God. They, they commit cosmic treason against God. And in their sin, they hide. They cover up with fig leaves because they were ashamed. Um, they, they run from God. Our running probably, frankly, doesn't look like um, you know, building clothes from, from leaves. Um, but I, I think our, our running might look a lot like building fig leaves of insecurities. Um, it might look like the fig leaf of isolation. If no one talks to me, I don't have to let anyone see my ugliness. Um, sometimes for me personally, That fig leaf is kind of that bootstraps theology of if I can just perform enough in these areas that I know I can do well, maybe I can like trick God into not addressing this thing in me that I know is broken. Man, maybe maybe our fig leaf is judging others. Man, if I can just get into my head that all these people are so much more stupid than I am, maybe I can feel better. I'm going to be very blunt. Um, Maybe our fig leaf is something like getting lost in a bottle. Man, if I can just get drunk enough, maybe all of this will go away. Maybe our fig leaf is something like anger, aggression. Um, I don't know how to, to deal with this tension, and it's weighing on me, and so my response is anger bubbling up in me. Man, another one that I'm guilty of. Sometimes my fig leaf is honestly distracting myself with enough Netflix to to kill a normal man. (laughs) But what am I doing there? If I can just get my mind off of this, maybe, please, maybe it'll go away and it never works. Because our solutions are... Silly fig leaves. So when I say something like "run to God," um, that's a nice sentiment, but uh, I think it would be helpful for us to talk through how to actually run to God. How do you run to a God that you can't see? Um, and I, I have found some great success in in some of the Christian disciplines. One way we run to God is is worship. Um, Christian, brother, sister, would you allow yourselves to tremble at the holiness of God? And I'm not just talking about when we sing songs in here that, that say the word holy. I'm talking about in your marriage when you come to that point of conflict. In that point of worship, rather than frustration and anger would you would you allow yourselves to to think about the perfections and the beauty of God and how he's given you this marriage to somehow point people to his beauty would you allow yourself to celebrate the presence of God um most of the most of the weeks here I'm uh, generally the worship leader guy. And I'll be honest with you, I uh, I celebrate the presence of God as my job description. And there are times, um, in my other part-time job, there are times when whatever worry is, is keeping me up at night and I simply struggle to find any hope in the presence of God. Um, and there's a discipline of Actually, allowing the truth that the God of the universe dwells in that bedroom when I am terrified of what tomorrow is going to bring. Um, church, I know, uh, I know we're a stoic people. I think one of the disciplines that helps us run to God is to let the truths of the gospel affect you physically. There's a discipline in God's holiness and God's presence and God's beauty and God's gospel is actually worth me allowing my affections to be stirred. It's worth me engaging with physically, even when I'm not particularly feeling it, especially when I'm not particularly feeling it. Um, There's a great commentary by C.S. Lewis. I think it's on Psalm 150, he, he points to Psalm 150 teaching us that worship is not actually worship until it's expressed, until there's an action, whether it be mental, physical, emotional, or hopefully all of the above. Um, so when I say worship, it's more than singing on Sunday, but it's certainly not less. Are we, are we tracking with that? Another discipline would be prayer. Um, Man, it is so hard to be honest with God, even in our prayer sometimes. Um, I, unfortunately, am very skilled in pious prayer while my heart is hiding in shame. I am unfortunately skilled in praying the things that I know I should rather than praying what's actually on my heart. Uh, Maybe if I don't, I don't know what my thought is there. Maybe if I don't bring it up to God, he won't bring it up to me. Um, Rather, could we be honest with God about our our sin? Could we be honest with God about our shame? Um, Brother, sister, pray to a holy God. Pray to a God that is above you and beyond you and is infinitely powerful to help infinitely powerful to heal. Brother, sister, pray to a present God. Pray to a God who is with you and for you, who knows you. Um, Another discipline that I think helps us in running to God would be community. Um, I I think maybe especially as Seattleites, we forget that we need each other. Um, As a as a worship leader, one of my my favorite verses in the Bible is about worship is out of uh, Colossians, and it's it's saying that in the makeup of the church, there's something about hearing the person next to you singing, where they're actually singing. Yes, they're singing to God, but they're singing to you, and it teaches and admonishes you. Um, there's something about interacting with the people of God over conversation over meals. There's something about having the person next to you saying because a sinless savior died, the wrath of God is satisfied. There's something about that that I can't explain that God seems to be very excited about because it does something in my heart. Man, um, like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's why we need each other. So through, through community, through meals, through conversations, through especially, please, especially our, our home gatherings, run to God with each other. Our, our, our last discipline is, is confession or, or repentance maybe would be a, um, another way to say that. Um, when I say repentance, I, I definitely mean between you and God, but I also mean repentance in the midst of of the people of God. So 1 John 1 um, says, If we say we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, There's something about The confession of of sin in in the within the the community of the people of God that helps me at least experience God's forgiveness that I already have in Jesus. Uh, Maybe I have it, but it isn't tactile yet. And there's something about me me saying to my my group, guys, I'm struggling. I need encouragement. This is where I'm broken. That, that helps me experience tangibly this work of the gospel, that helps me run to God in my shame rather than from him. Um, yeah, c- the community of God is God's very means of help and support to his people. Um, all that to say, God wants you to run to him because he wants to heal you. He wants to give you mercy. He wants to make you Categorically new. He wants to give you hope. When I say God wants to heal you, please hear me clearly. I'm not talking about some fluffy thing. I'm not talking about some momentary feel good sensation that we go and forget next week. I'm not talking about some e- easy believism hype. I'm saying that God wants to do open heart surgery in the places of our sin and our shame. And yeah, that's a little scary. Um, but I think I wanna trust God to do it. Um, when I was think- thinking about that point, there's this story in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That book has one of my favorite opening lines in probably all of literature. Uh, it's, it says, there once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Um, <laughs> there's this kid, Eustace, and man, he is the epitome of that kid on the schoolyard that you kind of always want to punch. He's, he's, he's always greedy. He's always manipulative. He's always jealous. He's always just, ugh, like reading these stories makes you so frustrated at this kid. Um, and there's he, he's just petty. Um, and there's this point in the story where through his pettiness, through, uh, through his selfishness, through his jealousy, through his scrubbiness, he, uh, he falls asleep on dragon's treasure. And if you fall asleep on dragon's treasure in Narnia with, uh, Lewis calls it, dragonish thoughts, he, he, you turn into a dragon. Now, in the story, you think this like, scrawny kid who's always mad and jealous would wake up as a dragon and be like, whoo, let's go, baby, time to get some revenge, right? I mean, honestly, that would be my first thought. Like, it, it's time to own some fools. Um, and maybe there's a moment of that, but there's a scene where he looks into the water and sees his reflection and, and figures out what's happened. And he realizes I've become a beast. I've been cut off from from my people. Um, I I would have thought this is the exact thing that I wanted, brother or sister. Maybe what you're doing in secret right now you think is the exact thing that you want. I promise you it's not. You will look in, in, in the reflection of that pool and realize that you've become a dragon. And so he panics, and he starts with his dragon claw, starting, trying to rip the dragon off of him, but it won't work. He does it again and again and again, and he tries new things, and he does new stuff, and he, does that sound like any of us? And finally, Aslan shows up. Aslan says, you gotta let me do it. And so there's this excerpt from the book. Eustace is recounting how this happened. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt the only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of him peeling the stuff off. So church, for the sake of God peeling the stuff off, will you allow him to do it? Will you invite the holiness and presence of God to stir your affections? Will you marvel at the good news of the gospel of Jesus? Even in sin and shame, will you trust the mercy and goodness of God? Through Jesus, will you bring your sin and shame into God's holiness, into God's presence? Will you let him pull the dragon skin off? Let's pray. God, thank you that rather than just ignore this tension between sin and holiness, rather than choosing, frankly, an easier path out, you chose the gospel. You chose to send your son that we might have a means of rescue, that we might have a means of healing and a means of hope. Thank you that Jesus stands in the gap for me. Thank you that Jesus stands in the gap for us. God, may we be awestruck by your desire to be present with your people, to to dwell with your people. Um, Holy Spirit, as we sing and worship and, and apply the word of God, Would you, again, stir affections? Would you stir conviction? Would you um, heal and move? um, Not not based on uh, the merit of some sermon, but based on the merit of your goodness and your love for your people.
0: Amen.